verses 33 to 37, and you'll find it at page 969 in the Church Bibles. And Jit's allowed to kick me if I fall asleep. We've already got that deal. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one white, one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil throne. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. May we just uh, pray as we begin. Lord, open our hearts to hear and to obey your word to each of us this evening. Would you embed in us all that I say that is of you? And will you set aside anything not of you? In Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us will have had the experience of uh, organising or at least attending children's birthday parties. And uh, one, one game that we used to play at such parties when I was a child and which has maintained some popularity since is Simon Says. You know, this is the one where the adult in charge gives random commands to a room full of expectant and very excitable children. They probably had too much sugar by that time already. And it could be put your hands on your head, or it could be run on the spot, you know, or, or, or lie on the floor. You, you know the format. Winners and losers, of course, are determined by the speed and accuracy of the children's response, and they're really keyed up for this. They love the sense of competition. But the command, of course, is only to be obeyed if the adult first prefaces it with the words Simon says. And if he doesn't, and you do it, then of course you're out and, and you know that. Any child who, in the eagerness to avoid being the slowest to react, obeys the commands without the words Simon says, is caught out and eliminated. They're out. So in this game, you only have to take what someone says at face value if they use the special words first. Now, the short passage that Lizzie read for us this evening shows Jesus reacting to the practice of using special words as a guarantee of truth and what that says about what's inside us in our inner beings, what it says, if you like, about our integrity. As we come to look at these words, I think first it's helpful to um, set the verses in their proper context. They come in the collection of teachings of Jesus that we call the Sermon on the Mount and which, of course, are the subject of our 
current evening series. And in this particular section of the sermon, Jesus is contrasting the right thinking and behavior, which are an expression of God's character, with the legalistic teaching which had developed out of the Old Testament law. So in this particular section, he says, doesn't he, in verse 33, again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, and then verse 34, but I tell you, and there's a signal that he's pointing his hearers in a different direction. So for example, as we've heard in previous weeks, he takes the command not to commit adultery and applies it to lust. He takes the command to love your neighbor and rejects the unscriptural gloss of and hate your enemy, replaces it with the radical and love your enemy. Secondly, it's helpful, I think, for us to understand the cultural context about truth and oaths into which Jesus was speaking. An oath then, as now, was a promise to tell the truth in which God's name was invoked to convince people that a special quality of truth attached to the words spoken. The implication was that if you invoked God's name in that way but spoke falsely, you would be opening yourself up to judgment by God himself. In Jewish law, there was a reverence for God's name, but oaths of this type were allowed in certain circumstances. The problem was, as it is today, that telling the truth is often inconvenient. And it was expedient to convince people that you were telling the truth whether in court or in business or in the ordinary transactions of daily life, whilst, shall we say, uh, having a little wiggle room about the exact veracity of what you were saying. And so a sort of hierarchy of truth-telling developed, supported in effect by some rabbinical teaching. If oaths were so important, then perhaps if you didn't use an oath, you weren't under the same obligation to tell the truth. Familiar to us today, perhaps. A more subtle practice still developed so that there was a nuanced or manipulable obligation to tell the truth. If, for example, you, you avoided using God's name as such, but swore instead by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem or by the temple, as we see here. That was of lesser significance. And you didn't need to be quite so conscientious about what you were saying. There was yet a further elaborate and rather bizarre twist on this in which Swearing by the temple wasn't in itself hugely significant, but if you swore by the gold in the temple, that was. Don't ask me why. Similarly, if you swore by a gift left on the altar in the temple, that was binding. But less so if you swore by the altar and the altar was empty. Elsewhere in Matthew, 
we read of Jesus' responses to these attempts to avoid accountability for truth-telling across the board. It's in Jesus' attack on pharisaical teaching in Matthew 23, in particular verses 16 to 18. Blind guides, he calls the Pharisees, blind guides. He attacks the distinctions and the hierarchies involved in this system, saying, in effect, if you are using language designed to draw validation from God himself, then you are effectively using his name. You are accountable for that, even if you attempt to disguise the fact by referring to heaven, earth, the temple, the altar, etc. Now, in our passage, Jesus' response to complex manipulations which leave us uh, not always to be bound by what we say is clear. He says in verses 34 to 36, do not swear at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or the earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. In other words, he is saying, just stop. Just stop and think what you are saying because you do not control any of these things. God does. Well, that's a very interesting insight, you might think, into the ins and outs of Jewish customs nearly 2,000 years ago. What does it mean for us uh, today? What relevance does it have for us? Well, not much has changed, actually. The world is still crying out to hear the truth spoken and to see it lived. It may sometimes seem to us as if the truth is an increasingly elastic idea. As Christians, our job is to point to Jesus as the truth. But sometimes in our everyday lives, discerning what is true in what is being said and then acting on it is not straightforward. Our dilemma is neatly summed up in a prayer, both amusing and perceptive, attributed to the chaplain of the Senate uh, of the state of Kansas in the United States. And it's a prayer used at the beginning of the, of the session, like, in, like in, in, in Britain we'd have prayers at the beginning of each session of Parliament, or each day in Parliament actually. This would be the, the prayer he would use as the Senate began deliberations. He would say this, Omniscient Father, help us to know who is telling the truth. One side tells us one thing, and the other just the opposite. And if neither side is telling the truth, we'd like to know that too. And if each side is telling half the truth, give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I love the idea of the reaction of the senators as they hear that, that prayer. Brilliant. As Jesus' followers, we are called to be people of truth. Our theme tonight is living with integrity. In our dictionaries, integrity has two parallel meanings. Firstly, the quality of being honest and having strong and enduring moral principles. And secondly, the quality of being whole and complete. A bit like a building having structural integrity, you know the, the idea. 
both strands, I suggest, have resonance for us. We need inner truth which is manifested in outward behaviour so that there is a wholeness and a consistency about our lives. If you like, that we are the same all the way through. If we want to be people like that, I believe there are at least three principles to take from what Jesus says here. The first of which, actually, I think should help us with the other two. And the first one is worship. Let's look at the, very, the way that Jesus describes God's relationship with what he has created. Heaven, says Jesus, is God's throne, and earth his footstool. It's picture language, of course, rather than a scientific view of the cosmos. But the meaning is plain. God is the Lord of creation. The heavens and the earth are his. We should pause to allow ourselves to be filled with awe at how big, is, how big God is and to worship. We cannot control or direct him or co-opt him into our schemes and plans. We cannot control our own lifespan or even ultimately a hair of our own head. God's sovereignty is that absolute. Adoration is the only fitting response. I'll say that again. Adoration is the only fitting response. Secondly, I think, the second principle is be careful what you say. Quite simple, really, but be careful what you say. I think it's clear that we are to take special care of the way in which we use God's name. In contemporary society, of course, we're surrounded by the persistent use of the name of God and of Jesus as swear words, as cursing words. We should perhaps not underestimate the witness we can give by a refusal to use God's name in that way. Nonetheless, I don't think that that is chiefly what Jesus has in mind here. Instead, I think he is reacting to the casual way in which God or sacred things associated with him, recalling references to the temple and the altar a moment ago, are drawn into speech as a means of asserting the position or the rights of the speaker. And to my mind, that's bang up to date. As many of you will know, my day job is in the legal profession, and in that capacity I have seen countless people give evidence in court, and I've, somehow, I've sometimes had to give some evidence myself. If you've been present in court, you will know that all sorts of things can be going on at once. Some, uh, someone can be talking to the judge, but lawyers and their clients could be having whispered conversations, uh, checking documents or passing notes around. It happens, it happens quite a lot. However, there was a very strong convention uh, amongst lawyers that uh, when the witness is about to give evidence and the oath is about to be taken, um, everything stops. You stop talking, you don't do anything else. There is quiet and everybody faces the front. As soon as the oath is over, you go back to doing what you were doing. But actually, while the oath is being taken, people actually stop. Too many witnesses, unfortunately, miss the significance of taking an oath and do so apparently casually. 
missing, incidentally, the point that their, their demeanour when they take the oath, uh, in fact, is the first impression the judge has as to whether they're likely uh, to be telling the truth. We might say, of course, that we're not generally people who would speak casually uh, of God. But um, I think even Christians can sometimes be guilty of seeking to wheel him in in support of a preconceived idea or a prejudice that we wish to advance. In our tradition within the church here, we, we place special emphasis on the importance of a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We speak in very personal terms of the relationship we have with him, born of his grace and mercy, and also of the growing experience of his love for us and the reality and joy of a response to him. That's all natural and all right. But just as our faith itself is a gift of grace, so is the privilege of speaking God's name. That means that it is right that we are particularly alert when doing so. If, therefore, we find ourselves beginning sentences like, I believe the Lord has told me that, or speaking as a Christian, I think that, or in my view, such and such is not really compatible with being a Christian because, we should, I, I suggest, find a moment to check within ourselves that what we are saying is genuinely honouring to God and does not represent an attempt to bolster an argument or an idea of ours or to employ him as some sort of trump card in a discussion or an argument. Let me be clear, we must certainly speak of what we have come to know of him in relationship with Christ. But our test must always be, does this glorify him? Does this lift the name of Jesus high? The third principle, I think, is tell the truth simply and plainly. If it were that easy. <laughs> but that will be living with integrity if we can do that. Cast your minds back, if you will, to the primary school playground of which we were all part at some point or another. If there are primary school teachers in tonight, then they will still be part of that world. So it's break time. Children are running around shouting, pushing, shoving as children do under the watchful gaze of the teacher on playground duty. You know the teacher on playground duty. The teacher is summoned to an incident. A child is lying on the ground, crying with the usual grazed and bleeding knees or elbows, having very obviously been pushed over by another child. Suddenly, a boy runs over from the other side of the playground. Miss! Miss! I swear I didn't do it. It wasn't me. I swear, I swear. That boy, of course, makes two mistakes, doesn't he? Which tell the teacher that he is, after all, the guilty party. The first is that he denies the offence before anyone has mentioned it to him. Not a good move. But also, what do his words really say to the teacher? They say... I know, you know, I'm not normally truthful and trustworthy, but I really need to convince you of my innocence on this occasion, 
and I'm going to plead and swear and add special words to persuade you. The experienced teacher, of course, is not persuaded. In our passage, Jesus says, verse 37, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. As I understand this passage, this verse is at the heart of what Jesus is saying. Note also the very striking sting in the tail. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Can Jesus really be saying that? That's really strong stuff. I think we have to look at what has gone before. Jesus has said that the casualness with God's name is not acceptable. And neither are gradations of truth-telling. The use of special words to avoid the obligation to speak the truth across the board. Children's party games are a bit of fun, but real life and real relationships are not a game of Simon Says. Truth is woven into God's character. Indeed, he defines it. There is no falsehood in him. Jesus describes himself as the truth, and we rightly worship him as such. It follows that distortions and manipulations which disguise dishonesty cannot be of him. And therefore, we must take what Jesus says about such things absolutely at face value. What the playground bully in my story didn't understand is that people will look at what we say and judge that and us by their previous experience of our trustworthiness and the extent to which what we say matches the way that we live. What's more, they won't just judge us on that basis. It will also colour what they think of the Jesus who we claim to follow and in whose power we profess to seek to live each day. Many years ago, I heard a story told of a member of parliament called Michael Allison. He was an MP during the Thatcher governments of the 1980s. He was known as a Christian and was in fact, uh, for a period, a Church of England commissioner. He was a trusted confidant of the prime minister and on occasion, when she needed to have an uncomfortable and potentially confrontational, private, face-to-face -face meeting with a parliamentary or ministerial colleague, she would ask Michael to be present. His reputation for integrity was such that those involved knew that there, would, that there could be no enduring dispute afterwards about what was said because his recall of the content of the conversation would be accepted. And that gave confidence to those involved in the different conversations. That's a, a, a story I've heard second or third hand, but not first hand, but that, that's very striking. That's a reputation worth having because it honours Christ. How can that reputation be ours? Well, to an extent, I'm afraid, that's for you to decide um, because each of our situations and sets of relationships is different. Each of us has to work out with God 
what he requires of us in those situations. Here, however, are some ideas. They're not a complete list. Of course not. One, start with a right view of ourselves and of God. Let's allow ourselves to be drawn into worship of him whose throne is the heavens and whose footstool is the earth. Worship him for his character. Worship Jesus as the truth. Let us ask God to make us increasingly like him, people of truth. Secondly, I suggest it's essential that we keep our promises, that we're known as people of our word in the small things and in the big things. If we're married, then of course we've made some, some big promises to keep. But on a more mundane level, do we turn up to something we've committed to? Do we give of our best at work? When we say to someone, I'll pray for you, do you make sure you do it? Thirdly, be careful about the promises you make. We've all seen, haven't we, um, movies about how the mafia operate. Um, you know the thing. The, the, the powerful underworld bosses do apparently gratuitous favours for the less powerful, the little people. And, of course, they receive them gratefully. Thank you, thank you, sir, thank you. But then there are always strings attached. No such thing as a free lunch. There are always strings attached. And eventually the big boss calls in the favor. I need your help. Deliver this package for me. Uh, drive these friends of mine from there to there. Don't ask any questions. Don't ask any questions about what's going on. Just, just do as I ask. Betray this person. Might be your friend, but he's my enemy. I need you to inform on him. These, of course, are heavily dramatized situations, aren't they, for our, for our entertainment. And they're thankfully not part of our uh, everyday lives for most of us. But I can tell you from experience that uh, in some parts of the business world, something rather similar does, in fact, operate. For us, I think, though, for this evening, for our purposes tonight, the message is this. Don't overpromise and underdeliver. Don't put yourself in a position where you can only return a favor or fulfill a promise by compromising on what you know to be right. Be careful what you promise people. Fourthly, let's not be two-faced whether in work or in our own home or in our personal lives, saying one thing to one person and something quite different to somebody else, bending with the wind so that we get a reputation for agreeing with the person we last spoke to. Fifthly, accept when you're in the wrong. This is hard, isn't it? We all like being right. I'm pretty clear about that, I think. Yeah. Some of us really like being right. 
I really, really like being right. And sometimes, as a result, I struggle to accept when the, when the fault or the mistake are mine. But saying sorry when we are to blame, when we've let someone down, or when we've spoken to others as we should not have done, is actually an important act of faithful witness. And finally, we should take the opportunities as they arise to speak of our faith in Christ, but to do so in a way which is honest and realistic, avoiding the urge to appear super spiritual or to profess an experience of God which goes beyond where we actually are. Most people are good at spotting the exaggerated, the embellished, or the downright phony. Well, those are just a few thoughts by way of example. You can add more uh, which have a particular resonance for you. But if we want something to reflect on, to guide us in our thinking and speaking and acting in this area, we could do worse, I think, than turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a prayer, as we know, of, uh, of penitence by King David after he has been challenged over his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder, in effect, of her husband. And verse 6 says simply, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. And I think we can legitimately say to ourselves, that really is where it needs to start for us. Let's, let's pray as we sit. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Forgive us when our lives fail to reflect your character. Make us people whose words and actions proclaim truthfulness and lift your name high. Amen.